Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome to our church. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe today's the first time back in a long time. Oh, welcome back. Welcome home. We're really, really glad that you're back with us. I have one announcement to make before I get into my sermon. I want to announce a very special workshop that the Christ Central Institute will be hosting in November. And in this workshop, we will be addressing this question. Should Asian American churches exist? Now, I've heard this question or some form of this question asked to many English-speaking Asian American Christians more times than I can tell. So it goes something like this. So you speak English, right? Then why are you still at an Asian American or a Korean American church? Why don't you join a regular church since language is no longer a barrier for you? Why, don't, why, why do you still stay in your ethnic church when you don't have to? You speak English. Why don't you join a regular church or a multi-ethnic church? Maybe you've been asked that question yourself. Maybe you've asked yourself that question. What am I doing here at Christ Central when it's so Asian <laughs> when I can speak fluent English? Well, Dr. Daniel Lee is the director of the Fuller Asian American Center, and he's going to come and help us think through some of these questions. Now, this workshop is open to everyone, but I really want to encourage the leaders of our church to attend this, especially our community group leaders, because you may have people in your community groups that may be wrestling with these kinds of questions, and this workshop will help you and equip you um, to be able to lead and facilitate those kinds of conversations. Now, the reg registration fee is $10, and lunch will be provided. It will be on November 4, Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can register on the Planning Center. I hope that many of you will be there, because I think this will not only be and, um, a helpful time, but it, I think it could be a very healing time for some of us. Our fall sermon series is called Getting the Gospel Right. Uh, it's possible for Christians and for churches to get confused about the gospel and to have a, a distorted understanding of the gospel. And so in this series, we're going to be studying the book of Galatians, and the goal of our study is for us as a church to get the gospel right, to get the truth of the gospel right. And the reason for that, and the reason why this is so important, is because our freedom and our fruitfulness are at stake. You see, it's only when we walk in line with the truth of the gospel that we will not only honor Christ and what he's done for us and for our salvation, but we will also experience that freedom that Jesus has won for us because it is in that freedom that we will bear beautiful fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and in our life corporately as a church. The title of today's sermon is Paul's Gospel and ministry. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 10. So people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? <clears throat> then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, for those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our text might seem historical and a little boring, but I assure you there are some profound gospel truths to be learned and to be applied in this text. Our text tells us about Paul's gospel and Paul's ministry. First, Paul's gospel was endorsed by the other apostles. And second, Paul's ministry was recognized by the other apostles. Now let me give you some context so that we can understand why the apostle Paul went up to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles in the first place. So there were some false teachers, they were known as Judaizers, and they were publicly accusing Paul of preaching a deficient gospel. They accused Paul of preaching a gospel that was different from the gospel that the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. And so the Gentile churches in Galatia, the very churches that Paul planted, they were beginning to get confused. And they began to have doubts about Paul and his gospel as the false teachers were openly contradicting Paul's gospel and they were undermining the ministry that he had done among the Galatian churches. And so the Galatian churches were faced with this question. Was the gospel that they originally heard from the apostle Paul the right one or was it this new gospel that they were hearing from the Judaizers? Who were they to believe, Paul or the Judaizers? Sadly, the Galatian churches were beginning to believe the Judaizers, and they were beginning to be led astray. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. And here was the basic difference between Paul's gospel and the Judaizers' gospel. Paul's gospel said that you were justified, that you were saved, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that nothing more was needed to be saved than simply this, that you believe in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone is how you get saved. But the Judaizers, their gospel said that you're justified or you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and by becoming Jewish. So, if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jew, the way you'd be saved is by not only believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, but you also had to become a Jew. 
You had to get circumcised and you had to start keeping Jewish customs and laws when it came to your diet and your clothing. So which gospel was the true gospel? Paul's gospel or the Judaizers' gospel? Now in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that he received his gospel as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He didn't learn his gospel from any man or any apostle. He received it directly as a special revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul was absolutely certain that his gospel was right. He had no doubt that his gospel was the true gospel. But to show that his gospel was not at odds with the gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem preached, and to show that it was the Judaizers who were preaching a false and distorted gospel, Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles in order to settle the matter publicly and once and for all. Because Paul needed to shut the mouths of the Judaizers so that the churches that he planted and were ministering to would have confidence and assurance that they could receive Paul's ministry of the gospel without fear, without doubt, and without hesitation. That's why Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles like the apostle Peter, James, and John. And when Paul got to Jerusalem and met with the other apostles, they endorsed Paul's gospel. And they did so by doing two things. First, there was Titus, a living test case. See, Paul took Titus with him to Jerusalem. Titus was a Gentile who was converted to Christianity, who became a Christian through uh, Paul's preaching of the gospel. And Titus had put his faith in Jesus Christ and his life bore the beautiful fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. But Titus was not circumcised. He had not become a Jew. He was not living as a Jew. He wasn't keeping Jewish laws and and customs when it came to what he ate and to what he wore. Now, the Judaizers would have insisted and required that Titus be circumcised in order to be saved and in order to be accepted into Christian fellowship. So here was the burning, critical question. Would the Jerusalem apostles require Titus to get circumcised before they accepted him as a brother in Christ? Or was Titus' faith in Jesus sufficient? Was it enough? that he simply believed in Jesus as Messiah. By God's grace, the Jerusalem apostles rose to the occasion and they stood for the truth of the gospel. Verse 3 says that the apostles did not force Titus to become circumcised. By accepting Titus without requiring circumcision, they were declaring that faith alone in Jesus Christ is what saves, not Faith in Jesus plus circumcision plus becoming Jewish. Titus was public proof once and for all that Gentiles could become Christians and become full members of God's redeemed covenant community by faith alone in Christ alone without having to become Jewish in their lifestyle or custom. The second way that the Jerusalem apostles endorsed Paul's gospel was by not adding anything to Paul's gospel. In verse 6, Paul said, those I say who seemed influential, he's referring to the other apostles in Jerusalem, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to Paul's gospel because Paul's gospel didn't lack anything. 
But the Judaizers said that Paul's gospel was inadequate. It was deficient. It was lacking the requirement for circumcision. But the apostles added nothing to Paul's gospel because Paul's gospel was missing nothing. You see, if you add uh, the requirement of circumcision to the gospel, you actually lose the gospel entirely. In fact, to add anything to the gospel as a requirement other than faith in Jesus Christ, when you add anything to the gospel, you distort it, you destroy it, and you lose it. And the Jerusalem apostles endorsed Paul's gospel by adding nothing to it because nothing was missing in Paul's gospel. The Apostle Paul knew that the gospel was true because he received it as a direct special revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. But now the whole church knew that his gospel was true as it was publicly endorsed by the apostles in Jerusalem when they did not force Titus, a Gentile, to get circumcised and when they added nothing to his gospel. The, Ju the Judaizers who were harassing the Galatian churches were silenced once and for all as their accusation against Paul of preaching a different gospel than the Jerusalem apostles was proven wrong once and for all. Paul's gospel was vindicated and endorsed by the Jerusalem apostles. This is huge. Let me tell you why. When the Christian church first began, it started as a Jewish Christian church. That's because the first converts to Christianity were Jews. And when they formed these new churches, they naturally brought their Jewish customs and their Jewish culture into their churches. And so it was fine and it was expected that the first Christian churches would be Jewish Christian churches. It would look Jewish. It would smell Jewish. It would sound Jewish. It would feel Jewish because it was filled with Jews. That's fine. But the problem arose when they believed that being a Jewish church was normative for all churches, even when churches began to have non-Jews in them. When Gentile Christians, or when Gentiles became Christians and formed their own churches through the ministry of Paul, the Jewish churches expected and even demanded that those Gentile churches begin to adopt Jewish customs and Jewish culture into their Gentile churches. And fundamentally, this is what the Judaizers wanted to do. They wanted to make sure that all Christian churches would look and sound and smell and feel like Jewish churches because that was the only way to be a Christian church by being a Jewish Christian church. So let me try to illustrate what was happening here. Imagine a, a group of Koreans became Christians and formed the church. The Judaizers would have demanded that they abandon their Korean customs and culture and adopt Jewish customs and culture because they believe that the only true way to be a church was by being a Jewish church, even though that church might have been filled with Koreans, right? Now, this is off the script here, and I'm not going to, hopefully I won't get into trouble here, but this Judaizing principle was very common. Most American missionaries, when they went to Korea, had this Judaizing principle. They didn't just preach the gospel. When they planted churches there, the churches that they planted began to really resemble the churches in America. 
telling them that they have to stop wearing Korean dress and they have to start dressing Western and, and changing even, you know, like you have to speak English. And so this Judaizing principle is very, I think, intuitive because we naturally bring our culture with the gospel that we preach. So that's just, a, just an advertisement of how this is not just happening back there, but it also happens today. But Paul's gospel didn't require you to become culturally Jewish. It just required you to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that means, and listen to this, this is huge, that Paul's gospel, which is the true gospel, gives cultural freedom to every church. A Jewish church was free to be culturally Jewish. And a Korean church was free to be culturally Korean, as long as their beliefs and their practices were true to the word of God. What this means is that Christianity is not bound to one culture, not even the Jewish culture where it first began. Every church has the freedom to allow their native culture to inform and to shape how they worship, how they fellowship, how they serve, and how they advance the gospel as long as it is true to the Bible. You see, there are many different types of churches in America. There are majority white churches, there's majority black churches, there's majority Hispanic churches, there's majority Asian churches, and there's multi-ethnic churches, just to name a few. And every one of those churches have the freedom in Christ to embody and to flesh out their faith in Christ in ways that are informed and shaped to their respective cultures, as long as it does not contradict the word of God. You see, there is no one way of being a church and doing ministry as if there's one right way to do it. There are many different, beautiful, and legitimate cultural expressions of the Christian faith embodied and fleshed out in many different types of churches. Listen, every church, whether a white church or a black church or a Hispanic church or an Asian church or any kind of church, Every church is good, beautiful, legitimate, and precious to Christ. I confess that I didn't always believe this, though. Uh, there was a time in my life when I used to think that white Reformed churches were better and superior to Korean churches. And that the white Reformed church how they did ministry was the right way. The white way was the right way, right? It was more normative and even more biblical. That's because I was educated at a seminary only by white Reformed professors, and I came to believe that the way that my white Reformed professors and how their white Reformed churches did ministry was somehow better, more normative, more biblical than the way my Korean church did ministry. To be very honest with you, I used to struggle with a lot of shame over the Korean church and over how the Korean church did ministry. I used to joke around and say that the Korean way of doing ministry was the ting tong tang way of doing ministry. It was the sloppy and the janky way of doing ministry. But the white way? Oh, that's the right way. <laughs> I used to think that the white Reformed church was varsity, right? And the Korean church was JV, junior varsity. And so I wanted to get out of the Korean church, I'll be honest with you, because I wanted to play varsity. 
I wanted to get a job at a white church where they did ministry right, the right way, the biblical way, so that I could do ministry the right way. You see, that's because I believe that the way Korean churches did ministry was merely cultural, while the way the white Reformed churches did ministry was biblical, failing to see that what the white Reformed churches were doing was also cultural as well. For example, I used to think that the way Korean churches would pray, you know, all together, all at once, with one voice, it was loud and chaotic. I used to think, oh my God, it's so Korean. Right? So nasty. Chongqing up right? I can't even hear myself pray. And I used to just think it was just so cultural. While the way white people prayed, one at a time, oh, that's biblical. See, the truth is both forms of prayer are culturally informed. And both forms of prayer are beautiful and legitimate. You see, what's important is that churches pray. And there is great freedom for churches to pray in ways that resonate with their cultures. You see, the truth is every church does worship and ministry differently because every church's worship and ministry are shaped by a combination of their culture, their theological convictions, their circumstances, their philosophy of ministry, and their morally neutral preferences. Some churches have an organ and sing traditional hymns. Some churches have a full praise band and sing contemporary songs. Some churches don't have any instruments at all, and they only sing the psalms. So what's better? What's more biblical? None of them. They're all good. They're all beautiful. Just different. Some churches uh, dance and are loud and are very expressive when they worship, while some churches stand still and are quiet and reflective when they worship. What's better? What's more biblical? None of them. They're all good, all beautiful, just different. Some churches are large and they meet in large buildings, while some churches are very small and they meet in homes. What's more biblical? What's better? None of them. They're both good and beautiful, just different. Some churches have their children and youth in their worship services. Some churches have worship services for their children, worship services for their youth. Some churches have a little hybrid mixed bag of everything. What's better? What's more biblical? None of them. They're all beautiful. They're all good, just different. Some churches emphasize the word and Bible study. Some churches emphasize worship, music, and prayer. Some churches emphasize fellowship and community. Some churches emphasize, hello? I think my mic just, oh, here we go. Some churches emphasize uh, outreach and community service. Which church is more biblical? Which church is better? None of them. They're all good. They're all beautiful. They're just different in their emphases. Most churches are monoethnic, and some churches are multi-ethnic. What's better? What's more biblical? None of them. They're all good and beautiful, just different. You see, every church has a culture, and that culture impacts and shapes how they worship and how they do ministry. You see, there is not one cultural way for a church to be a church and for a church to do ministry. The gospel gives cultural freedom to churches as long as they are true to God's word. 
See, what's important is that churches worship Christ, obey his word, and fulfill their mission. But how each church does that looks different, depending on their culture, depending on their location, depending on a host of other factors. Do you realize that there are no two churches that are identical, just as there are no two human beings on earth that are identical? Everyone is different. So let's never judge another church for looking differently than us, for doing ministry differently than us. And at the same time, let's never be ashamed of our church, over what we look like, over how we do ministry. Because how we do ministry is not wrong. It's just different with everyone else. As I said, um, there used to be a time when I was very deeply ashamed of being a part of the Korean American church because I wrongly believed that the Korean American church was somehow less than, somehow less, somehow less biblical than white Reformed churches. But by the grace of God, I have repented of my shame over the Korean American church, and I now I'm so grateful to be a part of the Korean American church. I love and I celebrate the Korean American church just as I love and celebrate white churches, just as I love and celebrate black churches, just as I love and celebrate Hispanic churches, and just as I love and celebrate multi-ethnic churches. Right? Because the gospel is true, our Lord Jesus has many different kinds of churches from many different cultures and places, and they are all precious to him. And Jesus uses every church from every culture to glorify himself and to advance his kingdom. So first, Paul's gospel was endorsed by uh, the other apostles. Second, Paul's ministry was recognized by the other apostles. The apostles in Jerusalem recognized that the Lord Jesus had entrusted to Paul the gospel to take to the Gentiles. Let's read verses 7 to 9 again. These are critical verses. On, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Church, I can't tell you how important this text is and how massive the implications of this text is for every church and how they do ministry. The apostles recognized that the Lord Jesus had entrusted to Paul the ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and they perceived that the Lord Jesus was as much at work in Paul's ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles as he was in Peter's ministry of the gospel to the Jews. And so the apostles gave Paul and Barnabas what our text calls the right hand of fellowship. By giving Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, the apostles were officially and publicly declaring that Paul and Barnabas preached the same gospel as they did, and they were fully supporting and endorsing their ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Even today, I don't know if you know this, we still practice the giving of the right hand of fellowship. You see, every time a new pastor is ordained to the pastor, pastoral ministry, the older existing pastors line up and we extend our right hand and we give them the right hand of fellowship and they walk the line and they shake all the pastor's hands. You see, it's not just a handshake where we're congratulating them on their ordination, though that is a part of it, but it's far more than that. When we extend the right hand of fellowship, what we're saying is we fully endorse your understanding of the gospel and we fully support your ministry of the gospel wherever the Lord Jesus sends you. We are with you. We support you. We're a ministry together. That's what it means to extend someone the right hand of fellowship. But the apostles didn't just endorse Paul's gospel and recognize that Jesus was working through Paul. They also officially recognized that his focused ministry to the Gentiles was valid and good. Oh, this is so huge. The apostle Peter and the apostle Paul preached the same gospel. There was no difference in the gospel that they preached, but there was a difference when it came to who they preached the gospel to. Paul would focus on taking the gospel to the Gentiles while Peter would focus on taking the gospel to the Jews. Now, we know that Paul ministered to Jews and that Peter ministered to Gentiles. We know that from the book of Acts. But generally speaking, their focuses were different. Paul focused on the Gentiles while Peter focused on the Jews. You see, there was a divinely sanctioned division of labor. I'm going to get to my so what right now because this is huge. There are two massive implications for this, for how churches ought to be doing ministry. Massive. First, it is valid and good that different churches have different focuses for their gospel ministry. Peter and Paul had the same gospel, yet they had different focuses for their ministries of the gospel. In the same way, Different churches have the same gospel, but they have different focuses for their gospel ministry. See, the truth is no one church can reach all the different kinds of people out there. Every church is more effective at reaching certain kinds of people and also not as effective in reaching other kinds of people. I'm going to say a few statements here that might sound controversial. But it's not. It's just common sense observation, okay? White churches are more effective at reaching white people with the gospel than they are reaching non-white people. Black churches are more effective at reaching black people with the gospel than they are reaching non-black people. Asian American churches are more effective at reaching Asian American people with the gospel than they are reaching non-Asian people. Multi-ethnic churches are more effective at reaching people who want to be in multi-ethnic spaces and not very effective at reaching people who don't prefer to be in multi-ethnic spaces. That is an obvious observation. I'm not trying to sound controversial. It just empirically supported, right? No one church 
is able to reach all the different kinds of people in the DMV. And every church is more effective at reaching a certain kind of people and not as effective in reaching another kind of people. Again, not controversial, just plain observation, common sense stuff. What I love about our story is this. The example of Peter and Paul liberates churches, liberates, gives freedom to churches to recognize and appreciate their own particular focus for gospel ministry and to recognize and appreciate that different churches could have different focuses for their gospel ministry. Now, I'm not saying that a majority white church can't minister effectively to some non-white people. I'm not saying that majority Asian American churches can't minister effectively to some non-Asian people, because they do, we can. But by and large, every church ought to, humbly be, to, to be humbly self-aware about its general focus for its gospel ministry and not be in some sort of self-denial about it. Okay. I want you to look around. Go ahead. Turn around. Look at the person next to you. Look at the people in front of you, behind you. Uh, it's pretty obvious in this space that we're a majority Asian American church, right? Somebody, oh, Pastor Owen, I don't see color. Now, that's interesting. God sees color. God's the one who made color. He loves color. He celebrates color. And so if you don't see what God sees, maybe you need to a... oh, stop there. But it's no secret that this church is majority Asian American, right? As such, we tend to be more effective and more fruitful at reaching other Asian Americans with the gospel than we are at reaching non-Asian people. Now, we do have some non-Asian people at our church, and we love them. We thank God for them. They are precious to our church. We love them. They're a part of the family. But it's also obvious that the bulk of our gospel ministry fruit is found among Asian American people. And you know what? There is nothing wrong with that. It's not as if something uh, we, we should be ashamed of, that we're better at reaching Asians with the gospel than we are at reaching non-Asians with the gospel. You don't know how many times I've heard people say to me, or I've heard in pastor, oh, our church, Christ Center, just so, so Asian, so many Asian people here. How come we don't have any more non-Asian people here? What's wrong with us? What are we doing wrong that non-Asian people don't want to come here? I just want to say, just stop. We're not doing anything wrong. Nothing is wrong with us. We just can't reach everybody. In fact, no one church can reach everybody. And it takes just great humility for our church to realize that we have our limits. And we reach those that God has enabled us to reach with, uh, with fruitfulness. And there's nothing wrong with that. So don't look around and be disappointed or discouraged that more non-Asians are at our church as if something is wrong with us or that we're somehow doing something wrong. Just as it was good and valid for Paul and Peter to be self-aware of their focuses for their gospel ministry, it is good and valid for every church to be self-aware of their focus for their gospel ministry. Listen, white churches should not apologize for being white. 
and being able to reach white people. Black churches shouldn't apologize for being black and being able to reach effectively black people. And Asian American churches shouldn't apologize for being Asian American and being effective at reaching Asian American people. Now, every church must open wide their doors and welcome everyone who walks through their doors, no matter their race, ethnicity, gender, age, or social economic status. But the truth is, the humbling truth is, not everyone will walk through our doors. Some will, but not everyone. And that's okay. And that leads to my second application and implication, which is this. Churches must collaborate with one another, not compete with one another. You see, if you recognize that no one church can reach everyone, and if you recognize that different churches uh, can reach different people, then you will intuitively recognize that churches need other churches. We need all types of different churches to reach all types of different people. And that's why one of our core values at Christ Central, it's on the banner there, is to be a collaborative church because we recognize that we need to collaborate and partner with other churches and Christian organizations in order to advance the kingdom of God together in the DMV. You see, our church can do things that no other church can do. And other churches can do things that we can never do. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to partner and collaborate. You see, friends, other churches are not our competition. Let me say that again. Some of you don't know this. Other churches are not our competition. They are our partners with whom we work to advance the gospel together so that we can reach as many different kinds of people together with the gospel. You see, when we partner with other churches and Christian organizations, we can reach people that we ourselves could never reach. And we don't even consider other Asian American churches as our competitors. You see, no one Asian American church is going to be able to reach all the different kinds of Asians that live in the DMV. We will need hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of Asian American churches to effectively reach all the different types of Asian Americans that live in the DMV. So with humility and with gratitude for other churches, we will seek to be a church that joyfully and strategically collaborates with all kinds of different churches and Christian organizations because together we can reach all kinds of different people that we can never reach on our own. At the end of the day, every church, we're a part of Team Jesus. Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, non-denominational churches, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're a part of Team Jesus. And the ultimate win for us as a church is not to have people come into our church, but the ultimate win is to see people enter into the kingdom of God. Amen? So Christ Central, let's be one door among thousands of doors by which people can enter into the kingdom of God because they hear the gospel here and they see the fruits of the gospel here and that through our door, through our church, some may enter into the kingdom of God as we humbly recognize others will enter into the kingdom of God through other doors and that's okay because we're not in competition with one another. We are in partnership 
with one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that what is required for us to be saved is to simply believe in you as the promised Messiah and to trust in what you've done for us by your death and resurrection. We don't have to try to become Jewish. We don't even have to try to become white. We're free to be ourselves in our skin, free to be in our culture and to worship you and to serve you in ways that resonate and are suitable with our culture. Thank you for the freedom that we have in the gospel to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand as we sing in response.